Amen. All right, with very little delay, grab your Bibles. Now we're going to jump into Mark 13. Mark 13 is the longest successive teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And it has confounded scholars and preachers and Christians for centuries. And so we're going to try to make sense of it in a relatively short amount of time dealing with prophecy and imagery and uh, eschatology. So we're only going to deal with verses 1 through 13 this morning. And there's a lot going on in our section. So I can't cover it all in depth. We will not cover uh, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew. We won't cover Luke either. So we're just going to focus on Mark here. And uh, when Jerron asked me yesterday how my sermon prep was going, I said, it's going good, but I'm trying to not to make it a two-hour sermon. And Jerron said that was fine as long as we had like a 15-minute intermission and bathroom break. <laughs> so if it goes two hours, you can, you can blame Jerron. Maybe we'll just set off fireworks and uh, get some donuts and coffee, and then we'll come back for the second hour. Uh, we'll try to keep it under an hour. So uh, no long philosophical inter- introduction this morning. Here's what I want you to know. As we read the text... Look at the repetition. We say this again and again when we study scripture, when we're in our Bible studies, when we're, when we're preaching through a text. Look at the repetition. What you will see repeated again and again and again must and will. These things will happen. They are guarantees. They are promises. You are not to be caught off guard. Everything Jesus says here is unavoidable. Second thing, if you read through the entire chapter in its context, the other thing you will see repeated is exhortation. So you've got the promises of difficulty, but you've also got exhortation in that. Be on your guard. Be watchful. Stay awake. Look. See. You've got eyes to see. Use them. Don't be caught off guard. Pay attention. Be sober-minded. Stay awake. Because I don't want you to miss the point here. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be lulled to sleep or to be caught off guard. The other thing that I'm going to emphasize this morning is that the when typically when this is read and I'm going to address this this week, probably more next week. But people get obsessed with prophecies. Is it this war? Is it this calamity? Is it this event? Stop that. The focus is the present. Believers are to be faithful now. It is not the future. It is not to try to pin a date on the calendar of when these things are going to happen. The exhortation is to every believer throughout all history. You will be persecuted. Difficulty will come. You must be faithful. You are called to be a witness of Jesus Christ. And that is the focus of this text. So no guesswork. I'm putting it all up front. The church is to be faithful and to endure now, not to be worried about world events. Why? Because the kingdom of God is unshakable. And so all of these things will not shake the kingdom of God. And the people of God are to be unshakable as well. This is our identity. This is our citizenship in the kingdom of God. And so I thought it'd be, before we get into our message, I thought it'd be worth mentioning. uh, Someone asked me this week, are we going to uh, have an Independence Day themed service and pledge allegiance? I forgot people did that. And so it never crossed my mind. So no, we're not going to do that. Uh, We love our freedoms. We're thankful for the country, but we celebrate our freedom in Christ. That is what we are here for. And um, that's all I'm going to say on that. So uh, we're going to move quickly through this. Just a little note. Uh, I'm going to be looking at a lot of parallel passages. If you can't turn there, I'd rather have you you, you listen than uh, flipping pages. Uh, Most of them will be in the New Testament, so that will help you out. Um, 
but I, I want to explain what we need to understand. So I'm going to fly pretty quickly through the details or my version of quickly, uh, but we're not going to belabor each one of these, these verses because I, I really want us to get Jesus's purpose in the, in the text where it's applicable for us. And so let's begin reading. We're in Mark chapter 13 again, one, verses one through 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his teachers or excuse me, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us. When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines These are but the beginning of birth pains, but be on your guard for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child and children will raise against rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. Good, awesome and gracious God. Maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things. Redeemer of lost sheep. Reconciler of the wicked. Merciful to the undeserving. Loving to the unlovable. You sent your son that we might have life and life everlasting in him. That he might go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sin. Rise to new life that we might have new life in him. We serve a God who has power over the grave. Lord, help us not to fear the things of man, the things of creation, calamities and divisions and destruction. Help us to only fear you and give your people confidence and boldness as we are your witnesses your ambassadors of reconciliation to a world that was lost without you. Lord, I pray that your spirit this morning will not just guide my words, but guide the ears of those here. Bring confirmation to the words of Jesus. Bring remembrance to our minds, conviction to our hearts, and action to our feet. We might not just be hearers of the word, but doers also, that you may be glorified in everything we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
So we begin here with Jesus coming out of the temple. We've looked at this rhythm of Jesus' ministry in the last week of his life. Going in and out of the temple day after day. This is the last time he is to leave the temple. He's been teaching. He's been debating. He's been answering questions. He's flipped over tables. He's cleared out the money changers. But he's going to leave now never to return. He's going to leave not just the buildings, but the systems. The religious systems, the sacrifices, the offerings. He will become the final sacrifice, the ultimate offering, so that the temple of the living God will be truly cleansed. This is what he is preparing to do. And of course, the disciples don't have Jesus' purview. They don't know what's about to come. And they're just amazed at Herod's, they're amazed at Herod's temple. One of the disciples said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Um, I just want you to get a a picture. There'll be a a few pictures on the screen. But of why they're so overcome, why this is a big deal. So this is kind of this is a a model, but it gives you an idea. So these buildings, the building is 35 acres, it's 12 football fields. Herod went overboard. This is not only the largest temple of that age, but of any age before that and for many ages after that. This is massive. Remember, we had talked about it, it would hold up to 200,000 people. And the Mishnah says that if you're seated on the Mount of Olives, which would be just east of it, so where you see those, those olive trees underneath, if you're seated on the Mount of Olives, it's 300 feet above the temple. You can see right into the sanctuary. And so... Jesus had the perfect view and the perfect purview. And so Herod wanted to show how great he was. Look at the next picture. Solomon's temple will be on the left. Herod's temple is on the right. No one before or that we've seen in historical records since has quarried rocks 60 feet long and 20 feet high to build the outer wall. The disciples were understandably amazed. Look how wonderful this is. This is a monument to Herod's industry and and Herod's attention. And God uses a pagan to build his temple. But these great buildings and these great stones have become stumbling blocks. They were built So that God would be worshipped rightly. So that his people would come and offer sacrifices. So they could draw near to his very presence and it became a den of robbers. These grand buildings glimmered in the sun and could be seen from miles around. It was a whitewashed tomb. There was no life within it. So now we get the contrast of what the disciples see and what Jesus sees. Verse 2. And Jesus said to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be one left here. One stone. Excuse me. There will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. First thing I want you to see is see. Do you see? Greek word blepo. See. This is all throughout this, this text. Use your eyes. Don't see with temporal sight. See with spiritual sight. The first thing, he's going to draw attention to something with their, their, their physical eyes. And then he's going to direct their, their spiritual sight after this. You see all these buildings, these stones? They will all be thrown down. Every one of them. You think it's amazing? 
within your lifetime, it will be on the ground. And it was so extreme. So Josephus was a, a historian around a little later than the time of Christ. So writing at the end of the first century, this is what he says about this temple. He called Jerusalem that splendid city of the world of worldwide renown. But Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be raised to the ground. R-A-Z-E-D. Brought completely down. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to spot no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. Let me translate for you. Basically, they brought it down to where if someone came after that, they wouldn't even know if there was ever a city there. This is 70 AD, the great Jewish wars and the destruction of the temple and the, and the final destruction of God's house on, on this earth. And Herod's temple will be and was brought to nothing. The builders, the, the figurative and spiritual builders of Israel, they trusted in these buildings and these stones and rejected the cornerstone. The very cornerstone who would be building a temple for God that would never be destroyed. That would go on into the ages. And so this temple, as we saw in, in our Hebrew study, had to be destroyed. The old is passing away, but the new is coming. And a new covenant in Christ. And so he's, he's giving them a prophetic view of what would happen in just about 40 years. And so then we move on. And so we get the, the setting here. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives. It's continuing this theme from last week. Remember, he's sitting and watching in the temple and he sees the widow and her great gift. Jesus is observing. He's taking it in. He is, he is thoughtful. He's not reactionary. He's sitting on his perch, looking in the sanctuary, knowing what he's about to do and knowing what is about to happen in Jerusalem. And he's sitting opposite the temple. So he's sitting across from it. But there's also a the, uh, figurative opposition here, too. He's against the leaders. He's against the systems that have become empty. You've got the Son of Man, the Son of God, standing on a mountain. And the people who are supposed to be worshiping God, empty and, and lifeless below. And so these four young disciples, the original four called, the two the two sets of brothers, James and John and Peter and Andrew, they, they come to Jesus privately. And they said, tell us, verse 4, when these things, excuse me, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Uh, we're going to expand on all these things and these things over the next couple of weeks. But I want to deal with these just two very natural questions. When will they happen? And how will we know? They're very used to asking for and seeking signs. It's a, it's a natural question we would all want to know. And so the disciples are asking for signs and Jesus lets them know, I'm going to give you a sign, but it's not the type of sign you're looking for. I'm going to give you a sign for a difficult journey. And like any journey, you need to know what to look out for. You need to know how to stay on the way. And so you know, we know this as, as drivers. That you have to learn how to read the signs. And so when you're driving, you got to know what the slippery road sign means. You got to know what a stop sign means. You know, in Florida, you got to watch out for, for bear signs or um, falling rocks or runaway truck if you're up in, in the mountains. 
And so I was looking at these this week because I get on a weird internet rabbit trail. And there's all kinds of strange signs. Uh, beware of penguins. Didn't know that you had to be this. Beware of uh, penguins. Beware of bulls. Uh, Australia's got a ton. Beware of kiwis and koalas and, um, and uh, what are the other ones? Kangaroos. All those. Um, but my favorite out of, out of all of them is from India. This is a, a real sign and there's, there's more than one. The sign, direct quote says, after whiskey, driving risky. <laughs> that is a very helpful sign, um, as many others are. So as Jesus is, begins to set up these, these signs, he's letting them know there's going to be difficulty coming. Watch out for the slippery roads and the falling rocks. Be sober-minded, figuratively and literally, as you're on this, this journey. This is how Jesus answers the when and the what, verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See, blepo, look, watch out, be on guard, same word as in verse 9, that no one leads you astray. Don't be deceived and don't be distracted. Don't get consumed with the watch out for bear sign that you take your eyes off the road and hit a deer. Don't do that. The signs are there for help. You're not going to stare at the sign and take your eyes off the road. So many people read these texts and they stare at the sign and then they stop looking at the road. That's not what is meant by these. And so here's how he's going to show that some will will deceive and some will lead astray. Verse six, many will come in my name saying I am he and they will lead many astray. So before we get into these, if you read verses six through 13, it almost reads like a commentary in the book of Acts. Most of these examples are in the book of Acts. And all of these things we see within the first century of the early church. The, the, the um, second half of the, the, the first century was a tumultuous time. There were wars and there were famines and there was division and there, was, and there, were, there, were, there were trials and there were persecution and torture and bloodshed and all this. But so is every other year of every other century of every other millennium. There has never been a time where there hasn't been wars And there hasn't been famines and there hasn't been persecution and there hasn't been difficulty. So we're going to see these things in the lifetime of the disciples, but it's going to mark the church age. And so uh, that's that's the lens which we're going to be viewing this. So getting back to verse six, many will come claiming I am he in the Greek, literally ego a me. I am many will come claiming I am there's going to be false prophets and false Christ. Don't fall for them. Next week, we'll get into how you'll know if it's a true Christ or not. The first example I want to give you is in Acts 5. So we see in the lifetime of the apostles, in the memory of the Sanhedrin, we have a couple of these examples. And so I want you to keep your finger here because I'm going to be coming back to chapter 5. So I want to read two verses now. Acts 5, 36 and 37. Let me give you the uh, context. The apostles are preaching the gospel. The leaders of the synagogue, the council members are not happy. They bring them before them. They're enraged. They want to kill them. And they're about to kill them. But Gamaliel, who's got some wisdom, says, hold on. Here's what he says. Pick up in verse 35. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So this was, and these were issues within the time of the apostles in the early church. And we have other examples of those who rose up claiming to be Christ and they were put down pretty quickly. Another very stark example is soon before the, the temple would be destroyed, Caligula, one of the Roman emperors, made a statue of himself, a massive statue of himself, and put it in the, the, the courts of the temple. But that's not the point. What does Jesus say here? Many will come in my name, saying I am he, and they will lead many astray. Don't lose sight. Don't be led astray. Remain faithful no matter what you hear. When you see these things, when you see these people come, it should be as ridiculous as Wiley Coyote putting the, the, the detour sign in the middle of the road saying, go off a cliff. You should be able to spot that. Don't be led astray like the others. And this is important for us too. We need to know the truth so that we are not led astray by false teachers, by false doctrines, by false churches. So many Christians are ignorant of the scriptures that they are led away by every new type of doctrine or um, emotional or, or, or moral appeal that is in contrast to the scriptures. Make sure we are also not led astray. We don't have people as brazen yet to say, I am Christ. But they are brazen enough to say, I speak for God. Or God told me this special revelation that no one else has. Or God speaks to me, so you should listen to me. And every day people are led astray by this. There are probably 30 churches in Sanford who are claiming right now, who are claiming direct revelation from God, special prophecy status, follow me, and, and God will be pleased with you. This is not just something for their day. So it's not just those who will come and claim to be Christ. It's going to get worse. The, the, the circumstances of our world are... So one thing to notice here, or to, to bring up here, they were in a relative time of peace. They had not had war for some time. So Jesus is, is letting them know that wars are coming. There were wars in the intertestamental period. There were going to be wars uh, around the, the fall of the temple. This is why Jesus says, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. Josephus wrote extensively on the Jewish wars. War is constant. These things must take place, but it's not the end. These things are historical events. They are important, but it's not the culmination of all things. Don't go full preterist here. And if you don't know what that means, ask an, an RBC student. You never go full preterist. Um, but don't be alarmed because this must take place. One of the other things at play here is the zealots. The zealots wanted to violently and excitedly overthrow Rome. And so they thought when... The, the, the war came on and the temple was destroyed, that that would be the, the coming of the Messiah. 
that that would be the eschatological kingdom, the, 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 the final kingdom coming into earth. And so don't be led astray by that. It is, this is not the end. But this must happen first. And it's going to get worse. Nations going to rise against nation. Kingdom will rise against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and there will be famines. These are but the beginning of birth pains. Again, in every era, there has been these things. There have been wars, there's been earthquakes and famines and pestilence and all this. But these are the beginning of birth pains. Don't skip over that statement. What are birth pains? I have no idea. Um, but I would guess that they're not comfortable and that they are, are painful. But they come before something beautiful. Birth pains are necessary so that life may come. Jesus is not using this word by accident. These are birth pains. The very groaning of the world so that new life may come out of them. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8 where Paul discusses this. Because from the Christian perspective, if you view them as birth pains, these are the storm before the calm. A sign of good for the people of God. That's exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Think of in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be free from its bondage to corruption, and to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. Think about this. God is redeeming us, and the creation itself is waiting for us to be redeemed so that it can be redeemed too. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's the situation we find ourselves in. The groaning began at the fall. The earthquakes and the tsunamis and all these things are the earth groaning. Waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be reconciled. It was then Jesus said, these are just the birth pains. That means it's getting closer. The contractions are getting closer. But Paul says, it's still until now. And it's still until now. So don't be surprised at this. I'm going to read one more verse. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first first. Fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The world is groaning. We are groaning. Jesus, we know you are working. We know you're, you're coming soon. Hurry up. And so when we see these things, we're to see birth pains. We're to see the coming of Christ and the coming of his kingdom. It was groaning and it still is groaning. Verse 9. Be on your guard. This is Blepo again. Uh, many translations translate this. Watch out. Be on your guard. Um, look out. But it's interesting here. This one is blabete autois, which is, you don't need to know all that. But it means look out for yourselves. You look out for yourselves. Meaning it's going from this, this worldwide uh, persecution and all these worldwide things to you. This is going to the individual, the, the individual believer. The things that are pervasive to the things that are personal. You for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues. These are Jewish institutions. 
You will be delivered over to the councils of the elders, to the synagogues, to the leaders of the Sanhedrin. The Jews, the religious guys, are going to persecute you. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake. These are Roman institutions. The Gentiles are going to persecute you. Persecute you. The religious people and the secular people will persecute you. You yourselves watch out for yourselves. This is coming. I want you to not be surprised. Why? Don't miss the point. He's telling them what's going to happen. But here's the point. You're going to do it for my sake. Jesus, why do you let this happen? For my glory. You must do this. This must happen. The persecution is not the point. The proclamation is. The persecution is not the point. The proclamation is you're going to go before the councils and the kings for my sake. We've got plenty of examples of those in Acts. We're looking at one in chapter five. Paul went before kings. Many of the following witnesses of the gospel went before kings. Why are they going to go for my sake? And what are they to do to bear witness before them? All this is to declare the kingdom of God. All this is to proclaim the gospel. This text is not supposed to lead us to worry, but to embolden us to preach the gospel. To embolden us to witness. This is not to be fearful like, oh man, I might have to suffer. I might be uncomfortable in my Christianity. No, it's telling you to straighten up, stand firm on the word of God and be confident in your witness. This is what this text is meant to do. Is something else must happen before the end. Before we get there, I told you to keep your finger in Acts chapter 5. I want to keep reading this, this passage because if you haven't felt convicted yet, you better now. So Gamaliel continues that if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. If it is, if it is of God, you might not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Acts 5 verse 40. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. What did they do? Cry and whine. Why? Why does the world hate us? Why don't they love us? Shouldn't we just love our neighbor and everything get along? No. What did they do? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Do we feel like that? When we look at difficulty and we re- rejoice at it. It didn't deter them. It emboldened them. Verse 42, in every day in the temple. In the very temple. Jesus cleared the tables in the very temple. Jesus is looking at in the very temple that would be overthrown in just a few years. And from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus or the the Christ is Jesus. It's amazing. We should learn from their example. The disciples, the apostles took these words to heart and they rejoiced that they were beat. Because the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. This must first happen. You want to know when will these things happen? When is the end coming? The gospel must first be preached. One important phrase in Matthew, Matthew 24, 14, and then the end will come. 
The gospel must first be preached as a witness to all nations and then the end will come. So it's not the end yet. When is the end? When the gospel is preached to all nations. Why is this important? It's the gospel that people need. Not band-aids, not gimmicks, not programs. It is the reconciling work of Jesus Christ towards sinful man. It is the preaching and proclamation of Christ. Crucified for sinners. Raised to new life for those who have faith in him. That they might be reconciled to God. That they might have life in him and life everlasting. This is what must be done. This must go to all the nations. Some of you say, Jesus, I just wish you would come preach the gospel. When is Jesus going to return? I'm going to sit on my couch and wait for Jesus to return. Preach the gospel. But what does that mean? When will the end come? And, and, and how long? Let me check my golden tablets. No. Uh, let's, let's go to 2 Peter 3. How long? It's a natural question for us. How long will this be? How long do we have to wait? Peter answers this. Peter was standing in front of Jesus when he said this. I think Peter gets it. Here's what he says. The end of 2 Peter 3. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as long as one day. How long? A minute or two, maybe a day in God's time. The Lord is not slow to to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But it's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I know this verse is highly debated. I know that people want to have this unlimited atonement. That people want to have this unit, this denial of election. Who are the yous here? I just want to show you. Look at verse 1. 2 Peter 1 verse 1. Who is the you? Peter is writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who's he writing to? The saints. People with faith. People who have the righteousness of Christ. So when Peter's, he's not writing to the world. He's not writing to pagans. He's writing to the church. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But is patient toward you. Not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all of you should reach repentance. All the saints, all of the lost sheep. When will Christ return? When the last sheep comes home. When the last ear hears, repents of his sins and turns to Christ. That's when he will come home. And then what will happen is we're going to get into next week. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar. And heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that that are in it. Um, that are done on it will be exposed. We must preach the gospel first to all nations and then the end will come. Every tongue, tribe, and nation must hear the good news of Jesus Christ. But Jesus and, and not but, Jesus and, and anticipates our fear. Okay, I got to preach the gospel to everyone, but what happens when I get pulled in front of someone who's intimidating or a scary king or something like that? And when, verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over. Not if, when. If you are faithful to the gospel, the world will challenge you. The world will oppose you. Someone said the problem with pastors these days is no one's trying to kill us. That's true. 
The gospel doesn't cost you anything. It's not worth anything. They will bring you over. They're going to deliver you over. And don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say. So I have an example of this. I don't know if you've been watching what's going on with the church. Uh, We often pray for the persecuted church and for those in prison for the gospel. Uh, There's a lot of persecution going just over our northern border. You look at what's going on in Canada. Just this last Thursday, Pastor Tim Stevens was just released after being in prison for 30 days. Why was he in prison? Because his church continued to meet. After they found out they were meeting, they locked the doors to the church building. They started meeting outside. A helicopter spotted them meeting outside. And he was in prison for defying the work or the, the, the orders of the Canadian government. More on him in a moment. They will bring you to trial. They will deliver you over. But don't be anxious. Those who are anxious about what you're, gonna, what you're to say, those who are scared in front of authorities, you care too much about man. If you're anxious about what you are to say, you're probably fearing man more than you are feeling, fearing God. Why should we not be anxious? Don't fear beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. This is incredible. God is opening up the way that he works in salvation, that he works through us and in us. For whatever is given you that hour is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. For you will not speak but the Holy Spirit. Think about that. The amazing nature of gospel ministry. When you need it, the Lord will give you the words to speak and it won't be you, but it will be you. Just like the scriptures that we hold in our hands. Who wrote the scriptures? Who wrote the gospel of Mark? Mark and the Holy Spirit. Who testifies in front of kings and princes and councils? The saints and the Holy Spirit. When preaching, we must be aware. I'm aware every week, praying the words of Spurgeon. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because when I, I know when I step up here, nothing I say will make sense. Nothing I say will penetrate. As Jesse read earlier, they must hear another voice. Unless the Holy Spirit is working in me and in you, this will all fall on deaf ears. When you are evangelizing, when you share the love of Jesus Christ with your neighbors, with your friends, with your family, it is not you who speaks. If they hear anything, they will hear the voice of their shepherd. Spoken through the Holy Spirit. Too many, too many of us fear what people are going to think. Fear we're going to say the wrong thing. Fear we're going to screw it up. If you think you can screw up your witness, your God is way too small. Don't be anxious. You have the spirit of Christ which is the seal and guarantee of our salvation. The spirit who taught us how to say Abba Father, who intercedes with groanings too deep for words. We have that Holy Spirit. Why are we fearful? Why are we anxious? Continuing with Tim Stevens, I love his response. So the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. The arresting officer was kind of a jerk. Uh, blamed him. 
said that he brought this on himself. He's a troublemaker. Even quoting scripture, here's what he said to him. Even God said, you know, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, right? So we're not getting into this philosophical debate. Wow. He's quoting scripture as he's putting handcuffs on a pastor. But only a man who is submitted to the Lord can respond like this. And the gathering of the church is not Caesar's, he retorted. So that's why we're gathering. Amen. And I watched his interview as he got out of prison. Thank his family and thank the church. Thank God that the gospel was being heard through this. That people were coming to faith in Christ through, the, through his witness and the witness of his church members. That his story spread all over the country and all over the world. And that people were coming to faith in Jesus Christ because he was in prison and he was thanking God for it. I am honored to be called to that ministry. To stand along those type of saints. And we should be too. So what does this mean for us? Very practical component here. What does it mean that when you get brought before kings and rulers, don't worry about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will give you words to say. Here's what it does mean. It does mean that we pray to God the Father to glorify the Son and we trust the Spirit to move hearts and guide our words. Knowing that if anything is accomplished, it is according to the plan of God, through the work of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must prayerfully approach anything that we say. That is what it does mean. It does mean that the servants of the Lord are tools in their master's hands. He chooses to use us. He doesn't need us. Eternity does not rise and fall on our abilities. We are tools in the master's hands and we are to be obedient to his service. And his spirit speaks through them. It's like when Pinocchio transitions from being the little puppet. We are not puppets. We are real boys. God really speaks through us and yet we still speak. That's what it means. We are confident in the work of the Father. Through the Son, by the Spirit. What it does not mean, and this is where I need you to pay attention. It does not mean you sit ignorant until the time comes. Here's a problem with many Christians. The Holy Spirit's job is to bring to remembrance the word of Christ. He can't bring it to remembrance if you don't have it in the first place. Amen. Too many people think I'll just sit around and look like the world six days and in, in, in 20, in 22 hours of the week. And if anything difficult ever comes, the Lord will give me what I need. This is the state of most Christians in most churches. We know way more about the teachings and thoughts of the world than we do the scriptures. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak if they are hidden within your heart. Store them up. can't hit threes in the game if you don't practice. Not all Allen Iverson can't all throw off practice. This is serious, though. So many Christians think, put me in the game, put me in the game. I want to do something. But they're not willing to do the discipline and the hard work and the training. There is no athlete on the planet who would expect to do that. 
There is no craftsman on the planet who would expect to do that. Pick your vocation. There is no computer programmer in the world who would expect to just be given a computer, a painter to be given a canvas, who did not labor at his craft again and again. So many Christians read this. I've seen pastors who read this. I've literally seen pastors who wake up on Sunday morning and do one of these. I guess that's what I'm saying this morning. That is foolishness. We're to be like David who goes daily to the word of God and seeks wisdom from it and learns from it and stores it up so that he might not sin against his God. That is what it means and that is what it does not mean. Jesus goes on though. And brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Persecution will not just be out there. It'll be in your home, too. There are many people who, in your very family, in my family, there are divisions, there are walls six feet thick between believers and unbelievers. Many of you families hate you because of the gospel. And if you are proclaiming the gospel right and none of your family hates you, you're probably not proclaiming the gospel right. But don't think that's a mean thing to say. That's the word of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There are examples in the early church of Christians. We don't know if there are Christians or not, but those who are arrested for the cause of Christ, who turned over their own family members to execution. Jesus says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Following Jesus is not only when it's easy and then I stop when difficulty comes. Take up your cross and follow me every day. You want life and life everlasting? Die to yourself. Live to me. And if your family hates you, so be it. Those are hard words to hear. Not just family, verse 13, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He tells us this in John 15. John 15, 18 and 19, where Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that that it hated me before it hated you. Don't think you're special. They're doing it because of me. I'm special. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you look like Christ, the world will hate you. If you don't, the world will love you. If everyone in your life loves you. If no one has ever said anything wrong to you because of the gospel, you probably look like the world. You might be the world and think you're a Christian. This is what Paul means when he says, share in the sufferings of Christ. I will take on his rebuke 
I will take on his ridicule. I will take on his mocking, even if it costs me my own life, because Jesus is worth it. I love what the early church writer Tertullian said. This is the end of the first century, beginning of the second century. Go on, rack, torture, grind us to powder. Our numbers increase in proportion as you mow us down. The blood of Christians is their harvest seed. Like the church in Acts, we, could, we should consider it an honor to be worthy of persecution. Not lament that this wicked world doesn't like us. We should rejoice if we are called to be hated by the world for the sake of Christ. Here is the most important will in this entire passage. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. There will be war. There will be persecution. There will be affliction. There will be trial. You will be delivered over to ruling authorities. But you will be delivered unto salvation if you are in Christ. Those who endure to the end. This is what we saw in Hebrews. Those who endure to the end, those who finish the race, they will be saved. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Let's continue our sign and journey analogy with the race of the Christian. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Be on guard. Don't be distracted. Don't be deceived. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endure to the end. How do you endure to the end? You look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. If he can endure the cross, you can endure hatred for his name. He endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How do you endure to the end? Consider Christ. Amen. Consider the cross. Consider his suffering for you. And consider the great cloud of witnesses. We come from such a great cloud of marathon runners. If you are in Christ, if your faith is in the true and living God, Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth. You are in the line of Abraham. Abraham, who left everything he knew to follow a God he never saw. You are in the line of Moses, who left the riches of Egypt for the sufferings of his people, who endured the suffering nature of his people for the glory of God. You are in the line of Paul, who went from persecuting to proclaiming Christ. You're in the line of Peter, who went from bumbling coward to faithful proclaimer of the gospel, who was crucified upside down. You are in the line of Athanasius, who fought for the truth of the doctrines of Scripture against the whole world. That we would rightly know who God is. You are in the line of Tyndale. Who under persecution and under threat fled so that fled throughout Europe so that he could translate the Bible into English that we are still reading today. He was in prison and killed for it. 
You were in the line of John Bunyan, who was put in prison for preaching the gospel without a, line, without a license. You were in the line of Richard Wormbrand and many others who were tortured and persecuted. Their nails pulled out, slapped, stabbed, beaten, starved, drowned, martyrs throughout the ages who endured to the end. This is our cloud of witnesses. This is who is our people. If you are in Christ, you will finish the race. It'll be an easy race if our eyes are fixed on him, or it'll be difficult if you're looking at every other sign. Keep your eyes on the road and don't be distracted. How will we know who is really of us? Those who finish the race. But we must be on guard and don't be lulled to sleep by false securities. Again, Christians have been delivered over to councils and to kings, but they will be delivered in the end. Because in Jesus Christ, we have been saved. We are justified through his work and our faith in him. We are sanctified through the work of the spirit in us. And we will be saved. We will be glorified when we see him again. And that is our focus and the focus of this text. Amen. Amen. My application is one point. Explained in three paragraphs. (laughs) You shouldn't be surprised. Following Christ is not dependent on when or how trials and tribulations happen. But following Christ is the exhortation to be watchful and faithful when they do come. In short, following Christ is not if trials come. But to be faithful when they come. So I want you to think about this this morning as we prepare our hearts and minds for the communion table. What is your faith in? What is your faith made of? For many of us, our faith has not been challenged or put to the test anywhere near what we read in this text this morning. These things we're reading in the text, they're nothing new. And we will see more of them. I'm not a prophet. But I can guarantee you, every day you wake up is one day closer to Jesus returning. These things are true because we live in a fallen world and in a world that hates him. And I'll be honest, it's been too long since we've had real persecution. It's made Christians soft. We think our lives are guaranteed to be easy. Being a Christian has not cost us anything. We are never promised that our lives are going to be free from adversity. Actually, it's the opposite. But... We are promised eternal life for those who are united in Christ. And we are promised great reward for those who labor in his name now. When is the end? I don't know. But I know we are called to be faithful until the end. So who will you be? We be the one who desires to be loved by the world and fear man and cower by the pressures of the flesh. But the one who desires to be bold for the name of Jesus Christ. So until Jesus returns, let us not be unaware. 
Let us labor because we have the Spirit of Christ who seals us, intercedes for us, and guarantees our salvation. So meditate on those words as we prepare to approach the table.